Well, hello, hello. Welcome to Kingdom of Context. This is a special broadcast we're doing here for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is what um, is often called the Feast of the Lord. So I'm excited about this tonight to be able to, to go live with everyone. And um, we actually are going to discourage uh, super chats on this particular one. This is a high holy day, what we would call a holy convocation. It's there as being an actual Shabbat, not just a weekly Shabbat, but a but a special feast day Shabbat. The you know first and last day of un, unleavened bread is a Sabbath unto itself. So um, yeah, that's you know just we just want to discourage anyone, even if you feel led, just maybe not not today. You know, just you can you're welcome to support us maybe later in the week if you decide, but but not today. Um, we uh, are excited about this particular feast. It's it's an amazing one, right? This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows directly after Passover. And uh, there's just so much symbolism in this particular feast. There's so much um, there's so much uh, significance as far as what the Father does for us uh, through His Messiah, through Yeshua. And and um, I know that a lot of folks think that these spring feasts have already been fulfilled and there's nothing that there's nothing more significance to them but i want to bring some verses tonight to the table and see if we possibly can um challenge that idea because i think there's a lot going on i really do um i think there's this feast is is not fulfilled entirely i mean in fact we know in matthew 26 yeshua tells us that uh, passover itself is not fulfilled until we get to the kingdom and so this is something that a lot of people seem to miss. They, they overlook it from time to time. And uh, I just, uh, first of all, I guess I should, before we get too far into this broadcast, um, I'm trying to look at the chat here. And if if my volume is good, someone let me know. I want to make sure everyone can hear me properly. And if the video stream is good. But yes, I see that Miss um, Sunshine Days. Thank you for, for the, thank you for joining us tonight, and um, exceedingly abundantly, Miss Debbie Murphy, and uh, Miss Lu uh, Louise Henley and Katrina Brown. Shabbat shalom to every one of you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, what we want to do is actually, I want to go over some scriptures, but at the same time, I do want to open up the chat if you guys have any questions um, about some of the scriptures I'm reading or about some of the uh, topics of this particular festival. And we just want to open it up for discussion because it's a it's a wonderful festival, and it's a, it's a shame that we're all kind of scattered about, and not everyone gets to celebrate it together because there's other um, celebrations that are happening this weekend, and not all believers are um, on the same page, so to speak, uh, understanding that th that this concept is a perpetual ordinance. You know that we are not only not only has this instruction for this particular festival and this, this holy convocation of this unleavened bread and Passover, not only has it never gone away as far as being instructed for believers to observe in a memorial, but it will be observed in a memorial in the kingdom itself. So this is just, a, it's a beautiful thing, which is why I always try to, in addition to the Matthew 26, you know, sometimes I try to remind folks that in Ezekiel 45, 21, we also have um, around the entire context from Ezekiel 40 to 48 of this millennial kingdom of this this millennial temple um the, the the priests that are involved um divisions of the land uh, for all the different 12 tribes and yes dan's included 
and all these different um, wonderful descriptions. You get the the trees that grow along the river of life, the river of life itself. Uh, you get Ezekiel in his vision, you know, wading waist deep into the river of life. And it's a wonderful, beautiful eight to nine chapters of context. And then smack down the middle of that is instructions for Passover. So it's th these concepts are what we call a part of the context tree, which would be the eternal Torah. So these ideas are not going away. The father has instituted the kids. The father himself keeps these. So therefore, they're not going away. Um, yes, Miss uh, Arlene Chambers, thank you. And William Kellington, good to see you. Stephanie Foltz, good to see you. Miss Catherine, um, I struggle to pronounce your name, Miss Catherine. Uh, he, he, I think I said that right. I know you're, you said you're watching from Nairobi, Kenya, and I apologize if I uh, messed up your last name. So, but Miss Catherine Dean, thank you for joining us. And uh, Shabbat Shalom to all of you. And I hope that uh, this will be an edifying little, little video here if possible. But I, I wanted to start off just real quick reading and doing, if I could, um, exactly what uh, all the children of Israel did after they celebrated their first Passover and after you know the Father miraculously saved them with the Red Sea event and then all the uh, armies of Pharaoh were destroyed in the Red Sea and then they're on the other side and then Moses sings a song. He's excited, right? I And as a songwriter, I've always wondered, what is this song like? You know, what was, was this just him? like scatting and just, you know, making this up on the fly? Or was this something that um, he's including, like, you know, phrases um, that he may have already heard in other hymns that they would sing to the Father or whatnot? But ultimately, he clearly includes some specific details related to what they just went through. So I thought I'd just read it for everybody as well. And in verse 1 of Exodus 15, it says, Moses and the sons of Israel, they sang the song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them, and I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they've trembled. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. And the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord. Until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Excuse me. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. So Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. 
And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. So she repeated that phrase. I wonder if that was actually the title of the song. They get. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. I think what's fascinating to me is that in this particular Exodus psalm, um, I'm not sure if if uh, anyone has ever really dug into it. All right. Not only are they doing this directly after Passover, but there's some wording in here that doesn't fit the description of what they just went through. And this is what I think is fascinating. Um, and it's kind of scattered into the descriptions of what they went through. So you have a couple different ideas that I just want to point out if possible. Um, if we look down to um, verse six and seven, so verse three, four, and five, we just get references to Pharaoh, his chariots, the, them being covered in water, but we go right into verse six, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Many of us understand what that idiom is about, right? The right hand is usually an idiomatic phrase for the Messiah. Well, We've already, you know, spent a great amount of detail in our kingdom portions explaining to you that this angel that went before them in the cloud by day and the, and the pillar of fire by night was an angel, right? That was the whole point was that he was an actual angel that the son of man who was yet to be become, you know, incarnate through Mary as, as, a, as a man, that the, the Messiah was the son of God existent with the father since before creation, before the world was made. As uh, we're told in multiple places, Isaiah 49, Ezekiel 48, excuse me, um, Enoch 48. Um, so there's just, he wasn't on the scene yet, but the father uses his angels to do things, to accomplish things. And this is why this angel was sent to be their protector and to help them. Um, and so some people question, you know, who was this actual angel? You know, was it, you know, Michael is referenced as the prince of, of uh, over Israel in, in various passages. And so sometimes you wonder, was it actually Michael? That was the angel in the pillar of cloud. Um, so it's interesting. But in this particular moment here in Exodus 15, 6, it immediately switches into this idea of your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now, many people might say, well, Sean, come on, that, that could be just a clear reference to you know, his strength, right? And that could be their reference of how um, his right hand is helping them out of the Exodus against Pharaoh and the army. Very true. It's very possible. But let's keep reading. And in your greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. Well, when did that happen? So Pharaoh's army chased after them. As the waters were split, the wind had dried the ground so that they could you know, take their horses, buggies, and themselves over it. But as Pharaoh was midway through, the waters came back down over them. So where's this burning anger that consumes them as chaff? Um, so it's a very interesting description that we see very analogous to the coming of the messiah in the future that it's this this righteous burning anger that comes with him that destroys everything like chaff we, we see this repeated in uh, i think it's isaiah chapter 33 as well so um <clears throat> and the blast of your nostrils the waters were piled up the flood waters stood up like a heap now to me from what i can understand it seems as if he's going right back into these flood descriptions of of the red sea what they just went through with, with pharaoh's army trying to pursue them. Um, and he talks about that a little bit more, right? Then he talks about the earth swallow them up. We could easily attribute that to the Red Sea. And then it says in verse 13, in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. And in your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. Well, that didn't happen. And that's not happening in the moments <laughs> that they're singing this. They're standing over on the other side of the Red Sea uh, that next morning. And I think they're about to go to those 12 springs. Um, but 
they're not they're not in this holy habitation yet. Um, not some people would like, to, and even me, and on on occasion would like to say, well, technically, Sean, come on now, you've talked about Abraham being promised in Genesis 15, being promised the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. Well, all this is happening within that time period. So they were actually living in Goshen on the eastern side of what would be like the northeastern suburbs, if you will, of, of, of Cairo and Heliopolis. Um, so they were already living technically within that boundary anyway in Goshen. They've been in then that, that boundary of the promised land to Abraham of covenant anyway this whole time. So how is he leading them to his holy habitation? And if we take this word holy serious, they're definitely not in his holy habitation on the other side of the Red Sea near the wilderness. So it's <laughs> to me, this is a, a wonderful little quick reference to them singing about the promise that they all understood from the covenant, which is this idea that was promised to Abraham, right? That, they, that he and his ascents would be led to this place so they could dwell forever with the father. This is what the father repeats that covenant all the time. And I think it's just, it's just interesting. Um, so I just want to say hi real quick. Uh, Dave SC uh, looks like he, uh, you showed up. Yes. Honor of Kings is coming out. Yeah. I'm glad you're waiting for it, man. It'll be coming out here in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're just doing some final touches on some of the videos and, and getting everything ready and uh, still pre-filming for, for ladder videos that will be coming out in a few months, but um, we are definitely on pace and everything's working well with the pre-filming and everything we're trying to do there so that I can have more time to, to do other projects that I'm working on as well. So yeah, that's coming soon. Justin McRoberts, I think I said that right. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, Rachel Peabody, um, Lindsay Wilkins. <laughs> this is my wife in the other room. <laughs> She's she's definitely here. Uh, Renee Zamudio. Zamudio. I think I said that right. What's up? Shalom to everybody. And um, we appreciate you guys joining us. Like I said, this particular episode, it was well, not episode, this particular live broadcast is um, is built for discussion. So if possible, if you guys have any questions about what I'm, some of the scriptures I've been going over, you're welcome to put them in the in the uh, in the chat there and I'll try to um, check it periodically and get to them. Um, I do want to discourage any super chats tonight. So um, there's we have other things in the video description, other ways that you guys can do that on a different day that's not uh, a Sabbath. So, <clears throat> but yeah, so let's read real quick. Um, here in Exodus 15, we've got this interesting stuff that's happened. Like I said, in just 13, he's talking about, they're singing about Yahweh leading them to their, you know, his holy habitation. Well, in all reality of the moment that we just read from Exodus 9 through 14, that is not happening in this description. So why are they singing about that? Well, in my opinion, it's all about they understood the covenant that was promised to them. That's about to be reaffirmed to them once they get to Sinai. But they understood this covenant idea that was initially promised to Abraham, which inherently included the resurrection, right? Which is some of the scriptures we're going to go over later because that actually has to do with unleavened bread. Because once we're raised incorruptible, all the leaven will be out of us. We will not be able to sin anymore. So that leaven is going to be gone from our lives. We'll have new spiritual nature. But some of the descriptions here talking about these peoples have heard they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All inhabitants of Canaan melt away. Um, terror and dread fall upon them by the greatness of your arm. They're motionless as stone. And here's this fun passage, right? Until your people pass over, O Lord. 
until the people pass over whom you have purchased. Okay. So many people would say that this verse 16 is talking about, well, this is when they were going through the waters that were split, that, that the other nations were trembling, right? Philistia, Edom, Moed, and the inhabitants of Canaan. But guys, nobody's there to witness this except Pharaoh and his army. So how would they even have heard yet? I mean, they did not have Wi-Fi as far as I understand. They did not have, you know, uh, live video phones that sent Pharaoh's armies like live streaming to the inhabitants of Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan. So I, I don't know how this would even apply as far as them literally the next morning singing this song in praise for what just happened, their salvation from the from the armies of Pharaoh, and how these other inhabitants, these lands, hundreds of and hundreds of miles away, almost thousands of miles away, in some some cases at the northern reaches of Philistia. Um, how would they have heard about this immediately? This makes no, so to me again in context of thirteen. To me, this is this is Moses flowing right into everything all the other prophets flowed into, which was the day of the Lord, and this is what's called the gospel, the kingdom of God, which is the coming of the power of God, the coming of the Messiah, and His brightness and His holy angels. And yes, all these same inhabitants of this land are going to be there on the day of the Lord, and they're going to be trembling on the day of the Lord. Terror and dread will fall upon them, um, which is why, and there's multiple passages, even at the Battle of Armageddon, like, um, it, it talks about them even fighting themselves uh, after they assemble to try to fight Yeshua at his return. They end up turning on themselves because terror and dread fall on them so badly um, when they do see him start to come and descend through the sky. Uh, Isaiah 64, 1 talks about him rending the heavens and come down. Matthew 25, 31, you know, he comes down with mighty power with his holy ones, uh, the angels. Um, and so the people on the ground are witnessing this, right? Like, as I've said before, if we understand the biblical creation model, they're watching the literal firmament roll back, right? Isaiah 34, 4, Matthew 24, 9, um, Revelation 6, 14, the stars are falling to the ground. The, the firmament's being rolled back like a scroll. Messiah and his angels are coming down. The people are watching this on the ground that have, that have assembled these 10 kings and who've assembled the, the armies of the earth uh, to try to fight him as return, they in turn get super scared and I and start fighting each other. So it's um there it's it's not really even a, a true battle as far as we might uh, perceive ancient battles or even modern battles. It's basically them trying to run because they're super scared. And I'm sure they're trying to like flee from wherever they've been mobilized and they end up you know, fighting with the people that are in their way because they're trying to get away, which causes mass confusion and a lots of enemy fire, so to speak. But um, I would imagine that this, this part right here is where Moses is just doing what all the other prophets do. He just flows right into this idea of uh, the coming of the Messiah, the day of the Lord. Now, why would he do this while he's singing on the day of unleavened bread, right? What they were just commanded a few chapters earlier in chapter 12. Right, this would be the start of this day that they're supposed to be keeping unleavened bread. So this is him singing a Sabbath song, if you will, right? But he's immediately tying it into the day of the Lord, which I think is fascinating because there's so many other parallels we're gonna we're gonna look at real quick. And then of course, verse 17, it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to get away from the wording of this where he says, You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. <sighs> wow. Well, that surely didn't happen in the wilderness and that not, not that day, not that week, not two months later, not, you know, not for 40 years. And even then they still, you know, were not planted because as it says, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
And this is something that is sounds like a small insignificant detail, but this is very significant. Second Ezra talks about this, the, the New Jerusalem, where the sanctuary of the Lord is, which this is talking about, is the one that his hands have established. This is the this is the one that's you know have engraved you on the palm of my hands, Isaiah 49. So this is this concept that his holy place, his sanctuary above is called the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of his inheritance, right? The New Jerusalem, Zion, the mountain of God, um, all these terms. And this is, again, he's referencing the gospel of the kingdom of God. So when we look at Luke 4, uh, I think it's verse 43 or 45, and Jesus says, you know, I go to all the other towns of Judea to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, for this is why I was sent, right? Yeshua is a prophet raised like unto Moses. And I know a lot of people like to quabble about that specific passage in Deuteronomy 18 and whether Yeshua is the fulfillment of that or if there were multiple prophets or the fulfillment of that. Either way, it works because Yeshua is a prophet like unto Moses. He had the same message as Moses, which would be the gospel of the kingdom of God. And this is what he's singing about on the first day of unleavened bread. Awesome. This is awesome. So, um, I'm gonna take a quick break and see if I can jump in the chat real quick. See if anyone has. Uh, let me see here. I think I think it's slowly loading my chat. So let me see if I can catch up real quick. <clears throat> All right. So it looks like uh, Phelps Z5 is here. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome. SR is here. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome. Um, Tyler Benson. Thank you. Welcome. Shabbat Shalom. Um, let me see. Psalm one nineteen, sunshine days. Um, oh, I already said hi to sunshine, sunshine days. Psalm one nineteen, welcome as well. After world, welcome. I hope you're doing well. And let me see here. Shabbat shalom to everybody. I don't see any questions at this particular moment. And um, yes, exactly, Renee. Uh, that's that's what I'm getting at. Is Exodus fifteen. 17 it says which your hands have established and made and this is this is a, a passage that's this is a, a reference to the new jerusalem the sanctuary of god the house of god the paradise of god this is um, this is synonymous this is consistent throughout the scriptures that this is what it's so here, here's moses singing about this how did he know about it when did when do we have in the text of genesis and exodus anyone telling moses about the sanctuary of god and why he would be singing about it on the first day of love and bread well, I would posit it's because they had the Book of Enoch, they had the Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, they had uh, the Book of Ju well, not the Book of Jubilees yet, but um, they had, um, um, yeah, the Testament of Twelve Patriarchs and the Book of Enoch, and so they would know that there is a heavenly sanctuary above, and they would it would be, uh, this is the information that was passed down through multiple angels and visiting Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even uh, Levi, and so when he received the priesthood, so they would have an understanding of why. They're doing all this stuff that's a copy and shadow on the ground. They're practicing of uh, the behavior that's being carried on by the Father and the angels in the heavenly sanctuary. So, yeah, this is this is why Moses would know about that. Remember, Moses is a Levite from the tribe of Levi. Uh, Levi was given the priesthood hundreds of years before this moment. This is why we see in Exodus 19, there's already priests at the base of the mountain. Uh, this is why we see in Genesis, I think it's 45. Um, there's priests that Joseph gives an allotment of land to, um, and in Goshen. So that's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, but, um, 
so the point is, Levi had already received the priesthood and the promise to him as far as the Levitical priesthood, which gets further established as a high priest area um, with, with in Exodus 28 with, with Aaron. That was already in place. So they, they already knew like their tribe was kind of designated through Levi being the descendants of Levi to, to be the priesthood and, and hold that office amongst their, their brothers and the other tribes, just as Levi did amongst his brothers. Um, as the book of Jubilees expounds to us with great detail. And guys, Honor of Kings, we're actually going to be going over some of that stuff, and we're going to be reviewing Jubilees. I think we're going to be doing um, four or five chapters out of Jubilees this year. And so I'm excited about it. Like Ken and I had such a great time, and we had some special guests that would join us on chapter two of Jubilees. And so these some other good brothers, uh, as we dig into all the descriptions of the creation model that Jubilees has to offer, um, so yeah, that was a really fun episodes that we, that we did with those guys. So I'm excited. I'm excited for you guys to see it in the coming weeks. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's probably enough for now as far as Exodus 15, um, being told to check the chat. So let me get in here and see if I can check. Is there's a question that anyone has, um, did the Israelites eat nothing but unleavened bread for seven days? Hi, August. Oh, welcome. Shabbat Shalom, brother. Uh, narrow way 77. Welcome, Shabbat Shalom. Um, did they eat? No, did the Israelites eat nothing but unleavened bread for seven days? Uh, let me see here. Personally, unless they're all on a fast, I would struggle to think that they ate that they carried enough on their backs because that's what we're told, right? That they carried it on their backs. Um, I would struggle to think that they ate enough of that. Um, or they had enough with them, so to speak, for especially if they had families with them uh, for seven days. I now let's go in real quick to Exodus 16, because isn't that the chapter where the Lord immediately provides manna? So they set out from the wilderness, sent out from Elam, all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is in Elam on the 15th day of the second month. All right. So this is a, um, a month later. So this isn't it either. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure they had something to eat. I know they were definitely grumbling about not having meat to eat, right? But the Lord is providing manna. So this may be the the question um, that was asked may, may be a bigger question than just seven days <laughs> as far as them going into the wilderness with what provisions they may have had. Um, obviously, they took their animals to go sacrifice in the wilderness. So I don't see why there would be anything precluding them from you know, eating their animals, you know, um, knowing that they would not eat them all because they needed some for uh, the sacrifices, which is which is also interesting here, because that could be why a month later, when they get to the wilderness of sin, that they actually have to uh, that they're now at this point talking about, well, we're, we're hungry because remember the whole point of them leaving the Exodus, what what Moses was sent to Pharaoh to tell him that let my people go so that we can go into the wilderness for three days journey and worship. Yahweh and worship our God. Um, that textual definition of worship is a is a sacrifice with animals, which is why they had this, you know, between the different plagues, you had, I think, Exodus 8 and 9. Pharaoh kept trying to say, okay, well, you guys can go. You and the adults and the animals can go, but leave the children here. And Moses was like, no, no, that's, that's not going to fly. And then they came back to Pharaoh later after another plague, and Pharaoh's like, okay, well, the adults and the children can go, but leave the animals here. And Moses was like, no, that's not going to fly. We need us, the children, and the animals to all be able to leave. You know, And Pharaoh didn't want to ha have that happen. Um, he just kept trying to renegotiate the deal, so to speak, which is 
which was part of his pride, which even his own advisors came to him and said, don't you see that uh, our nation's being destroyed? Let these people go, <laughs> which I think is wild. Um, is that internal internal struggle in their leadership. But uh, so whatever they took with them when they left and they took, you know, uh, they took the bread with them as they left, it definitely was... Um, it was definitely, in my opinion, possibly enough for the seven days. But as far as is that all they ate for the seven days, I, I highly doubt it. Um, I do. I think that more than likely they would have either because uh, clearly for all these for all these sacrifices that they're already aware of. That's why we have an Exodus 18. They do a burnt offering sacrifice with Jethro. So they already know what sacrificing is, which could be why. By the time a month later we get to this point where in Exodus 16 the man is being provided, they're not wanting to use their animals anymore because they know they're gonna need them for the sacrifices. And they're saying, Well, we're we're hungry, we're gonna starve, you know. And so um, this is when we get the manna, and then of course the Lord provides meat with the quail at the same time. Um, so it's an interesting thought. It's a great question. Yeah, because we there's just these little details that that we don't always get in the scriptures. So um, all right, let's see if there's any other questions in the chat real quick. Um, it looks like Phelps Z5 asks during the wilderness journey, where did the Israelites get their wine for the sacrifices? No vineyards out there. Yeah, that's that's what I was just just talking about. Is they clearly took provisions with them, knowing sacrifice. This is actually uh, absolutely supportive of the points that I've been trying to explain with many videos for for months, which is this idea of the eternal Torah. Right, is that when we look at the patriarchs that came before the children of Israel during the days of the Exodus, you see in Genesis signifiers everywhere that they knew the law of God, they knew the Torah of God, they they knew what was required for sacrifices for this and that. And this is where the Book of Jubilees goes into great detail and explaining that for everyone, so you can understand. And if we take the Book of Jubilees seriously, it's given to Moses on Mount Sinai by the angel that goes before them. And he's talking to them and he's explaining to Moses, this is where all these instructions came from. And your forefathers, the patriarchs who were faithful in this covenant that we're renewing with you right now, they were faithful in this and they knew all these instructions. And this is why we're doing some of these, you know, all these circumstantial reasons for, for all the different instructions. So Phelps Z5, yes. They would have had the animals. They would have had the grain that they needed for the grain offerings. They were, you know, I imagine they had, donkeys and carts that they with them with their animals like i was talking about and you can carry quite a few provisions and saddlebags of wine you know and wine skins on a donkey and grain because remember once we get into if you've if uh some of the people watching have followed the kingdom portions that we've been doing in the last few weeks we go through leviticus um the grain offerings it's just like a handful so it doesn't have to be a lot of a lot of grain for grain offering obviously the animal you know you want to do all the instructions for the burnt offerings and the guilt offerings and everything. And the, but the drink offering, as far as the wine and the actual grain offering, um, that could be carried on the animal itself. So that doesn't really have to be um, a huge provision. And those things both keep um, in, you know, for long periods of time. So it's very uh, obviously wine just gets better with age, right? That kind of concept. So uh, Katrina Brown, you kind of actually talked about that in your atonement video. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you, you're responding to there, but um, yes, unfortunately, I, I do try to repeat myself sometimes in these ideas because these ideas and no one's ever talking about these, you know, and this is the thing that I'm, 
I, uh, I lovingly, you know, want to encourage other folks who believe the whole Bible is applicable to them today. Yet I, sometimes it's, I feel like there's just a lot of overlooked concepts for one being, you know, like I said, that the gospel of the kingdom of God is everywhere in the old Testament. If you know what you're reading, if you know what you're looking at, like we just went over and broke down Exodus 15 real quick. Um, let me see here. Let me see. It looks like it says they are what they had up to a point. The first Passover was different than the other one. They got in the land. Yes. SR uh, makes a comment about that. Yes. The Passover, the instructions, um, for the Passover in Exodus 12 were very in haste. There was very, there did not have a temple established or even a tabernacle, the tent of meeting set up. So yes, there's a cumulative amount of information and instruction given to them from Exodus 24 all the way, excuse me, Exodus 20 all the way up to, you know, Exodus 37. Um, that basically you, yeah, you don't, you, you've got all the tabernacle temple priesthood set up. So that all that stuff is going to be implemental now. And, and then you had, once they actually got into land and had an established uh, place, they were to not, you know, do the Passover um, just anywhere. They had to come and do it at the the doorway of the tent of meeting. Um, all right. So let's see here. Phelps SC5, but for 40 years. Oh, this is actually, that's a great question. Phelps SZ5. Okay. I see what you're asking now. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't get it the first time. Um, we actually asked something very similar to this um, a few weeks ago in one of our, I think it was um, our crowns of life video when we asked, where do they get the birds? So we are, no, it was in our Leviticus uh, 14 and 15 video um, lepers in the kingdom. When we're talking, going over the ideas of, of like where um, if you have leprosy and you need to offer your sacrifice because you were quarantined and you were healed of it. So now you go and you got to shave offer your, your sacrifice, but uh, you know, some of it required birds. You're like, well, where'd they get these birds? You know, because from the stories of the manna, it seems like that God brought these this huge flock of quail in and dropped them on them in the desert. Uh, from I'm guessing the nearest area, which would have been the Mediterranean, the Red Sea area. Um, but so yeah, where are they getting birds? Well, it's not there's if we read and we haven't gotten there yet, but like in Numbers 11, um, we're going to be reading about Moses's. Um, Okay, we don't have to go to Numbers 11. Let's just stick with Exodus 18. Jethro. Jethro brings Zipporah and Gershom and the other kid, right? So he brings his family back to him, and they reunite, and Jethro leaves and goes back to Midian. So it's not like these guys were just like ostracized in a sense where no one could ever come visit them or come trade with them for whatever they would need or want. Because remember, um, all these Sabbath instructions would be applicable in the in the in the wilderness while they were there. So they could easily interact with other peoples. Um, and of course, if they had whatever provisions they had um, uh, coming out of, uh, I think it's Exodus 17. Remember back in the day in the old Testament, if you went to war or went to battle with somebody and they lost, you got everything that they left on the battlefield. If your city was nearby, they would come and take everything from your city, which is called the spoil of the city. Um, so they fight Amalek in Exodus 17. So let's look at the actual day of that. Um, the congregation of the journey by stages from owners to Santa Cornelia, and there was no water for them to drink. Um, but uh, that's where it was from. I, can't, I don't know if I'm seeing a, a qualifier of like what day this happened. But it just says in verse 8 of Exodus 17, 8, that Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim, which um, is part of their journey. And this is within the first three months 
of them before they even get to Sinai. So, um, and it says in verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek with his, with his, and his people with the edge of the sword. So anything Amalek had at that point, they would have uh, possessed anything. They, anybody they fought along the way, Og and Bash, Agabashan and Sihon, those cities they would possess all the substance and produce and livestock and those things that they would have taken over as a part of the spoil or the victory. Um, in addition to being able to interact and trade, because clearly Amalek figured out where they were and came up and caught up to them and tried to attack them. Uh, the very next chapter, um, Jethro comes in. He knows exactly where they are, right? Um, so the point is, like, they weren't just... I personally think that the angel of the Lord that went before them, he picked up and he moved whenever um, possible threat came in. Um but I don't think that, uh, I don't think, uh, one second, guys, let me make a quick adjustment here. I don't think that, um, um, okay. I think the angel of the Lord picked up and moved whenever they were in danger. So um, if it was something that they wasn't a good time for them to fight or whatever, because remember, we're not talking about people that are helpless. These guys were, were hardened warriors and i mean especially if we if you um look at other history of the i mean these just because they were in servitude under egyptian egyptian rule doesn't mean they were incapable of swinging a sword and defending themselves um these guys originally were famous for being you know slinger of stones and if you understand an, an uh, egyptian sling stone that thing i mean it's like a sniper rifle guys we're talking like 250 miles an hour when they released that thing and you can pick off your enemy 100 yards away before he even gets close to you to throw a spear um, so there's there's a couple of factors in this idea of where did they get the provisions for 40 years in the desert? Trade, people did, people knew where they were. People, I mean, it's hard to not, right? When you've got uh, a million and a half to two million people going through the desert, that's um, a pretty long caravan. And it's pretty easy to see if you're tracking people, it's pretty easy to find that trail, so to speak. Um, and so it's not hard to trade and it's, um, and they also interacted with different peoples in the areas that they journeyed in different, different facets of the 40 years. So, um, they were not without provisions basically. So, yeah. And, uh, let me see here. Let's see if there's any other questions I'll get to real quick. And Debbie Murphy's actually right. Yeah. Um, you just need a wine press to grow in the desert. Ancient wine presses, by the way, guys, were just pits they dug in the ground. And then they would dig a secondary pit that would actually get the runoff when they stepped in in the great pit. But um, again, it doesn't it doesn't matter because they can still they can still trade with people if they needed to. Because these people had dough, they had money, they had lots of uh, I mean, they literally put a lot of it. Um, was it Exodus? Um, I'm trying to remember. Exodus 32, 31, um, where they're, the people are asked, you know, to contribute their gold and silver and things. And so they definitely had things of value with them in order for trade easily. So someone asked when Yeshua was raised, if it was Shabbat. Okay. Um, I, well, we're going to have to go to those scriptures real quick and see. I'm pretty sure. If it's in in the Matthew, or if we want to go to John, I'm pretty sure it was Shabbat, is is my opinion and my thought on it. Um, but that he just wasn't discovered 
by the two women until the sabaton, which would be the the Greek for the first day of the week, is what I is what I think is how that Greek is translated. See if I can get to that part. Um, but that he was already risen and the tomb was already empty. And so let me see if I can find it real quick. But yes, it would make it would make wonderful sense if he's raised on a Shabbat, whether weekly or um, first. Uh, let me see here real quick. And to, from what I understand, and and I know this is a big debate amongst a lot of people, as far as you know, was it a Tuesday or Wednesday that they actually had Passover, and then the first High Holy Day of Unleavened Bread that would have happened, and then. You have him in the in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, raised from dead on the weekly Shabbat, which I, I've heard very I've heard several different um, appeals to different types of timelines for that concept, and to me that one's the one that seems to make the most sense. Is that the at that year the Passover fell midweek, that way he can actually be in the ground three days and three nights, and then be raised on an actual Shabbat. So that would be perfectly fitting with the idea of. Um, um, getting into his resurrection body on a day of rest, which is wonderfully fitting to the whole idea of him not striving anymore in obedience because the whole purpose, I mean, obviously he's, he's going to obey because that's part of him having that resurrected body and being the first fruits of the first resurrection and everything that entails, which he gets this new heart with the laws written on it permanently. And there's no more striving for obedience. Like he had to learn obedience as a son, as Hebrews five, seven and eight tells us. But yet now with our resurrection bodies that were promised, like you sure already has, we you're obeying instinctively. This is actually, um, uh, this is just the beautiful promise of Ezekiel 37 uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, 33, and 34, all the way even back to Enoch chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. So this is, um, yeah, this is this is the first resurrection. That's why I put it on my on my tree as one of the context branches. To, and there's this is something that breaks my heart that um, when I see other teachers and pastors and people that are trying to understand Scripture and they do not have the paradigm of, of what the first resurrection is, what we're promised, the difference in the nature that Paul tries to explain to us in 1 Corinthians 15, that we're, we have this natural body now, but we're promised a spiritual body. And with that comes this covenant that we're promised as well to have his laws written on our hearts so that we will do them without fail and never have to worry about transgressing his covenant again and, and be assured that we can always abide with him in his house it's a beautiful promise, guys. It's a beautiful promise because all the leaven will have been pulled out of us and we're raised incorruptible, as Paul puts it. And so this is a, a beautiful promise. This is what Yeshua has already received. And this is what we wait for on the day of the Lord. When, as we read back in, fifth, in Exodus 15, 17, when his people are passed over, right? And so real quick, I'm just going to go to a... Um, uh, let me see if I can go to a, a scripture real quick about that. And that's, uh, I think I've read this before and I know I've read this before, but I just, it's always good to reiterate just real quick about this concept of being passed over and what that actually looks like. So in Isaiah 26, this is going to be in verses 19 to 21. It says, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come my people. Enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you and hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. 
And here we're about to be explained what that indignation is. Verse 21, for behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So this is verse 19. We have the first resurrection event. Verse 20, we're taken to the new Jerusalem, hidden away. Verse 21, at the same time, Yeshua and his angels are coming down. Right. This is why Paul talks about in First uh, Thessalonians 4 that we're caught up to meet the Lord at his coming. Right. Now, we're not just going to hang out with him. We're not going to have a convo. We're not going to have a big collaborative meeting with him. We're going to see him as he's coming down with his warrior angels, right? Because the angels that are sent out to escort us to the New Jerusalem for safety, we're going to the New Jerusalem. He's coming down with warrior angels to do battle, and that's the indignation and wrath, the burning anger that we referenced in Exodus 15 earlier. So this is why there's a sequence of events that's happening during this during this process. Um during this resurrection process, which is so, so important for us to understand. And as a result of that, let me go to a wonderful little passage in Isaiah 25, because we get, let me find it real quick, guys. Isaiah 25, people ask, well, what's going on? We're taking this Passover day is, is, is when we're taken to, or at least this is my theory, right? Is this how it lines up with Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread? Uh, that we're passed over from the wrath, we're spared from it because of Yeshua, right? Because of what he done for us, the quote unquote, the blood of the lamb, right? And so um, we know, as we've done in our Yeshua high priest video, that there is, those are broad sweeping statements that have actual, you know, moving pieces behind those theological moving pieces. And for us to say that we're saved by the blood of the lamb means that it was his perfect obedience which caused his blood to be spotless, analogous to a lamb that would be required for sacrifice for atonement. But yet, once he died on the cross and was resurrected, he can then go to the heavenly sanctuary and minister before the Father atonement for us by his life. And this is what we actually talked about in tonight's kingdom portion as well. But in Isaiah 25, um, if I can actually get there, we're going to find a wonderful, wonderful concept. So as we were just raised, just as we would have a holy convocation on the first, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a feast of seven days. We're also seeing this in Isaiah 25. Let me get to it real quick. All right. And if we look in verse six, it says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. Remember, we just read from Exodus 15, right? When, when Moses is singing about us being passed over and taken to his mountain, his holy sanctuary. Boom. Isaiah is talking about the same thing as well. The Lord will. Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trodden down in its place and the straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. So even we're getting a similar reference of Moab just like um, Moses was singing about in Exodus 15. But this concept of we waited for his salvation. So this directly ties in the concept of, of salvation that we wait and hope for the first resurrection. It's why it's called a blessed hope. And this is the idea that 
they're happy, right? And this to me is why in verse eight is talking about the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all their faces. Um, Lindsay and I were talking about this a few days ago that it's it's not because of sadness, it's elation and joy, right? It's, it's, you're finally there. You have arrived. You know what I mean? You're in the big house. You're in the father's house. You see angels flying around in this glorious place that's been prepared for you. And you're there. And he's he's uh, prepared in a lavish banquet for you, right? And this is the marriage supper of the Lamb of, of Matthew 22. Um, this is the beautiful moment. And and why seven days? This is the question. Why seven days? So we talked about this uh, a few portions ago. I think it was in Crowns of Life episode, Kingdom Portions, a couple weeks ago. But I want to read it real quick again because I think this ties in beautifully. Of we have this lavish banquet that's going on, just like in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's called a feast of joy, the festival of the Lord. Seven days you're celebrating, right? Why? Well, let's look real quick. So in, in Leviticus chapter 8, um, we have, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you have this concept of Moses um, anointing Aaron and his sons to be uh, the high priests, okay? So what do we promise in Exodus 19.5? I, uh, I think it's also 1 Peter 2.5. Um are we promised at the resurrection to be made a royal priesthood? And I know a lot of people don't like that. Um, they think that we're already the royal priesthood, but there's a lot of sig there's a lot of qualifiers that goes with claiming to be a priest. And that's what we're always trying to lovingly remind folks that guys, you know, a priest ministers to the Father in a temple. There's he's carrying out the law. He's doing he's doing things. The priest specifically is doing things, you know. And this promise that we get to become a royal priesthood in the same Melchizedek order as Yeshua to be a lesser priest while he's called the high priest, that is a royal priesthood where we rule and reign with him as Revelation 2 talks about. We're not doing that now. We're, right now, we're an ambassador of Yeshua. We're ambassador of, of the Father's ways. We do our best in discipleship and striving, but right now we're not a royal priesthood. Okay, And that's what Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 5, tries to expound to us as well, is that we're still on the earth right now. We're not in the kingdom of heaven that's going to come down. That's New Jerusalem. We're not in his kingdom yet. So we're not in that priesthood yet. The earth plane already has a priesthood. It's the one given to Levi. And that's what you know Hebrews 8 is trying to explain to us. That's why it says if Yeshua were on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest. Because his priesthood is for the kingdom of heaven. Even though it's a royal priesthood which will rule and reign from the kingdom of heaven out to all the world. It still is a totally different concept. So we're not there yet. It only is granted to us at the resurrection, uh, which is why we get these linen robes at the resurrection, right? Because that's those are priestly garments. So in Leviticus 8, we get this concept here at, of uh, Aaron and his sons being ordained for their priesthood position, specifically their high priesthood position by Moses for seven days. So I mean, awesome. Amen, right? We're raised from the from the dead, taken, hidden away in the New Jerusalem. Lavish bank was prepared for us. We're ecstatic with joy. And it's a banquet of seven days. It's it's beautiful. To, to me, the symbology is just absolutely beautiful. Um, I hope that I'm doing justice trying to explain some of this tonight, but um, I just think it's it's absolutely beautiful. Okay, so uh let me see here. Um Uh, SR asked a great question. He says, what's the purpose? He says, not saying that it's, it isn't impossible, 
but does it say they had trade? Now we know they had mana. Okay. That's clear. We, we know they had mana, right? And it says the mana stopped once they got to Jericho 40 years later. Um, and then occasionally they would have, but they just didn't only have mana, right? Because all the laws that we went through of, of them having livestock, well, those livestock are breeding. So they, you know, and as we talked about, you, you can grow things, but I don't think they really, I don't, I'd have to go through the actual timeline and see where they stopped and stayed at different places. Just as far as could they actually grow a vineyard and have time to, you know, have a harvest come from it. I don't, I don't know if they had that opportunity, but they definitely needed to go where water was and uh, which was the whole event with the rock at, at Sinai and everything. So, um, so SR asked a great question and he says, not saying that it isn't impossible, but does it say they had trade? Of course not. No, it doesn't say they had trade. Uh, I'm just telling you that we see interactions with people that were not a part of their community coming and going. So, and they had birds from somewhere. So they must, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not a caretaker of birds. Um, I don't know how they are. Uh, how do you say this? I don't know how they're bred in a sense. I guess they had bird cages they carried with them because they needed them for certain sacrifices. Um, and he says, what was the purpose of the wilderness experience to trust in Yahweh? Question mark. And SR, you're absolutely right. That's what Deuteronomy 8.2 specifically tells us. Let's go there just real quick. And so that's a. Uh, that we actually get Yahweh, the Father, telling us specifically why he had them in the wilderness for that period of time. And it was for a purpose. So let's go there real quick. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. We just read about that, by the way, in Isaiah 25, right? They're taking the Holy Mountain, just like Exodus 15 talked about, um, wiping away their tears at a lavish banquet set for them we just read about this right and they're living in eternal life so this is like um this little moment here where we see in the torah where the father says if you do these you will live and guys he's he's talking we just read i think it was in this portion uh, leviticus 18 5 that we aired tonight and it's the same concept he's saying this everywhere in the torah and he's not talking about the first death this is why jesus reminds us it's not the first death we're worried about it's the second that's why this promise of resurrection was inherently always in the covenant. So he's getting we're getting that reminded again in verse one of Deuteronomy 8 1. All the commandments I'm gonna command you today you should be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. And here's the part, and here's the question's answer that he might humble you to testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor does did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. Um, and he goes on to explain more, but but um, yeah, so that's that was the purpose while they're led and they were supernaturally provided for with manna, absolutely. Um, all right, so let's see if there's any more questions in here. Um let me see here. We've got some fun emojis. <laughs> um, so it looks like scripture says, let me see here. Who's, who's asking this question? My, my things. I'm sorry. My, my um, chat is like refreshing and I'm missing some comments. So I'm trying to, um, to, 
if we were to change into immortality, then why not come with him and his coming with his messengers, angels, messengers? So SR is asking a question I've heard often. Um, and I, I, it's a great question, brother, um, or sister. I'm not sure what SR stands for, but you're welcome to let me know. And it says, if we are changed into immortality, then why not come with him in his coming with his messengers slash his angels? Um, because of what I, the scriptures I just read, it, which is this idea that we're not promised for that. And just as... Uh, of Benjamin DOC says a few moments later in this chat, we are, it's as real as you and I. Okay. So when we're resurrected, we're not wispy ghosts, guys. It's us. We're back. It's us tangible, real, we're real. Just like Jesus tried to tell, you know, Thomas touch, touch me, find out I'm real. You know, I mean, he's, he's physically interacting with them. We're not promised uh, an eternal ghost life. We're a promised eternal life. This whole concept of the resurrection is the idea that we come back in real realness. Okay. And this is something that, um, you know, we just are, we have a different physics to us. And this is what I've tried to explain in different videos. And, and Ken and I talk about this and Red rescue and other, other topics, but um, the resurrected body, and this is what Paul tries to explain with great to tell the resurrected body is a, is a greater capability, so to speak. So we're not natural bodies anymore, but we're, we're a spiritual body, but they're still tangible. They're still, you can still hug them. They can still have emotions. They can still do things. They still eat food, right? That's why the man itself was called the food of angels. And I think it's Psalm 84. Um, so you've got, I mean, it's a very real place. That's why the place promised to us at the resurrection has a place with rivers, right? It says uh, in Ezekiel, I think it's uh, 47, there's people fishing in this river. It means they're going to be eating the fish they catch. Like this is a real place promised to us. Okay, this is not this is not some ethereal, uh, non tangible uh, ghost world. Right? This isn't some interdimensional science fiction. This is reality. The scriptures offer and and proclaim that you are brought back to life, but the body that you're given that you're raised in is better than the one that you were birthed through the womb as a descendant of Adam. So now you're raised as a quote-unquote son of God, as a first creation of God. You're not birthed through a womb, through the process of lineage descendancy, which is what we all are right now, but we're raised by the power of God through his spirit on the command of his son on the day of the Lord, given our resurrection and mortal eternal bodies, and which will breathe air and be able to hug each other and eat food and drink wine, like otherwise... There's no point in having a lavish banquet <laughs> set up for us. See what I mean? So this is a very real and tangible body. And the promise to us is that we're not made as warrior angels. Those are a different class of creation. We're actually going to be judging angels because we're put into this, this priestly, um, this uh, royal priesthood like Yeshua is, which gives us greater authority than the angels. That's a little bit different topic. Uh, we actually go over that in one of our Honor of Kings videos we're putting out soon on the Testament of Levi. But um, but yeah, so it's just understanding the reality of what you're actually promised in Scripture and what the Scriptures plainly say. It says that we're resurrected, hidden away for a reason. Yeshua is coming down with angels that have always been there. This is actually their purpose. They're, they're referenced in the book of Enoch and many other places, Joel. This is their actual purpose for them was to be warrior angels for this specific day. And this is exactly why Leviathan and Behemoth were made for the day of the Lord as well on day five of creation for that specific day. Um, because this is the 
what's called the consummation of the ages. It is the epic moment that all the feasts point to, that all the all the scriptures and the prophecy and all the prophets talked about. It is the coming of the kingdom of God. And there's, you know, like I said before, there's these are big broad statements, but within the statement, the context of it, there's mechanical motions, right? There's pieces that that all fall in place for these big broad statements to to explain. And one of the one of the pieces that falls into place of the gospel of the kingdom of God is this day of wrath, the day that he comes. And like we read earlier, he judges the iniquities of the earth. And this is uh, he's coming with angels that have been predestined since creation, since day one of creation. These angels have been predestined to come with him in battle, not us. We are not destined for that. And I know that's a popular teaching that a lot of people um, or that some churches have put out that we are the actual Joltun army, that we are the warriors of the Lord, but that is not what is scripture speaks about us and our resurrection. And there, there's already people that are appointed that job and those are specific angels. So um, let me see here. See if I can see if any other questions. Oh, and my thing just refreshed. So there's, it seems to be a lot of questions. <laughs> Hang on a second. Um, Ms. Lena Kay, my better half is in the chat with you. And uh, she's in the other room, and she is uh, she is my better half for show. Um, let me see here. What is your understanding on where the dead go to heaven? Lena K, resting until the resurrection. Okay, uh, Miss Lena K. No, this is actually something that um, we're raised from Sheol. We're raised from this is a place that. Um, is scripture talks about many different places. Um, I believe um, Genesis 32, Psalm, uh, Psalm 49, um, uh, Psalm 16, 10, uh, Luke 16, uh, verses 19 through to 31, Yeshua gives us an entire story with Sheol as the backdrop, right? W which is called Hades in the Greek, but it's the same world. I mean, it's the same word in, in the Hebrew for Sheol. And this is a specific place in the biblical creation model, a specific basement, if you will, uh, that was designated for both the righteous and the unrighteous to go and wait for this day I've been talking about, right? This great day of consummation, the day of the Lord. Uh, and the righteous are raised on that day. This is what Paul talks about in First Thessalonians 4 and also 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Um, this is what Yeshua talks about in John chapter 6 and John chapter 5, that he will raise us on the last day. I think it's also in John chapter 11, verse 40, ooh, I want to say 43, but um, he, he raises us on the last day. He doesn't take our spirit from heaven back and put it into a body, right? Now we're that's why I read that passage from Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 26, 19 earlier. The earth gives birth to departed spirits. So we, at our death, are a departed spirit that goes to a holding cell, if you will, if, if you just allow me to, to, to loosely phrase it as that. And then that is a place that the scriptures has defined for us called Sheol. And it, that was his whole purpose. It was to hold the, the souls of men, um, both righteous and unrighteous, and they're separated they're not just hanging out together. The righteous are in comfort. The righteous are in a place that's uh, analogous to a very nice place, right? But at the same time, you know, how much consciousness do they have? That's that's up for debate. Yeshua's story, I mean, if we think Yeshua's just making up stuff, but Jesus' own story in Luke 16 seems to think there's some sort of consciousness going on, uh, but yet they're still called a place of rest. So it's not, they're not in torment. 
Um, the other guys on the side of the unrighteous, they're not in tor they're not in fiery flames of torment. They're in emotional despair. And this is what you should, if you actually look in the Greek in that uh, Luke 16, the word used for their torment is emotional despair. It's not physical pain. So this concept of on the day of Lord, the resurrected, the, excuse me, the righteous, the dead in Christ are raised to eternal life. Those who are still in Sheol that did not get raised um, because, you know, they've been judged for a different fate. They're the ones that are brought up in Revelation 20 at the end of the millennium at the great white throne judgment. And all of Sheol is brought before him. That's why it says all of death, hell, and the grave, all of Hades is brought before him. Everything it holds and contains. So all the unrighteous souls that did not take part in the first resurrection. This is why Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5 says, blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection. Because it's that's what you want to be in, right? And if you're born during the millennial reign, you want to be in the second resurrection, not in this in the moment where hell and death, hell and the grave and Sheol is brought before Yeshua to be judged and exterminated in the lake of fire. So um, what I've emphatically shown through many scriptures and a couple different videos, um, we also talk about this in our Honor Kings first season. I think it's in chapter, um, it's in episode seven. I think we talk about Sheol, Tartarus and um, the prison of angels. Uh, it's episode seven, I believe, of our Honor of Kings. You can find it on the playlist here on the channel. Uh, Ken Heidebrecht and I spend like a good hour and a half on this specific topic and we talk about what it is, what it's for. The unrighteous that are not raised in the first resurrection are judged by Yeshua, they're put in the lake of fire, which is called Gehenna in the Greek, and they're exterminated from existence. There's this Catholic idea of just eternal torment and burning fire is a huge lie. That is a misnomer. That's not what the scriptures describe. Um, and this is a concept where you... Um, to me, that's just a, a one the, a, the lie the Catholic Church has created millions of atheists with that lie, because that is actually not what God has described in his word as far as what happens when we die and while we wait for the resurrection and what happens to those who don't take part in the resurrection because they rejected it. They rejected God. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected his ways. They, they, they um, were judged by Yeshua um, according to their deeds, as Yeshua tells us. So let me see here. Um, so SR is continuing to ask, so why does that prohibit us from coming back with him since he has the same body? So SR, I will, um, this will be the last time I'll have to address this topic because again, it's because the, the scriptures tell us that we're not the ones that come back with him. Okay. We go to be hidden away as that verse. I don't know if you just tuned in a little late, but um if you go and read Isaiah 26, this there's many other places, but Isaiah 26, 19 through 21 is a great summation of the events in three little verses. Okay, so we are hidden away in the New Jerusalem um, while the wrath and indignation is happening. We are not battling the world uh, in, the, in the Antichrist um, as soon as we're resurrected. That is not what is intended for us. It's not what the scriptures tell us. So um, that's, that's where I went over that earlier. All right, so this is, um, let me see here. Looks like David Shearer is, is addressing someone else's question. Um, yes, and actually David Shearer brings up a good point when he talks about this idea of where we go when we die. Second Corinthians 5 eight. we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. So this is, um, this is a concept, again, where Paul makes a lot of statements, but you have to understand we do not interpret the Old Testament in light of Paul. You have to understand Paul is only commenting 
on what he knows about the Law and the Prophets in the Old Testament and many other books that weren't put in the American canon, by the way, because uh, he's quoting from Enoch in 1 Timothy 6, and he's quoting from 2 Ezra, and he's quoting from, you know, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Um, he's quoting, you know, he, he, he had access to books that we don't today, but the point is, um, or at least books that we're, we're just rediscovering today, if I could put them like that. But this idea of if I'm absent from the body, I'm immediately present with the Lord. Well, let's let's look at that concept, right? Let's go to um, one of my favorite Psalms, and this is going to be in Psalm 139. And I hope this has to do with unleavened bread. <laughs> I think we, some of the questions uh, be a little bit random, but um, try to stay on topic as much as possible. So let's go to Psalm 139, and this is a beautiful Psalm. Um, all right. So if we... Uh, Many of you are familiar with this one, but I'm just going to start in verse um, 7. It says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. So this is a beautiful concept of, of the psalmist expressing this idea, not only of making his bed in Sheol, that's an idiomatic reference for death. Okay, this is what uh, we have Jacob mentioning, and I think it's Genesis 37 where he's mourning Jacob. Excuse me, Jacob is mourning Joseph, thinking he's dead. And he says, I'm going to mourn, and mourning I'll go down to Sheol. Um, so this is this idea of sleeping in Sheol, and it's a phrase of resting because you are resting from your works. This is why... Um, uh, what's his name? In First Samuel twenty-eight, you have the prophet. Uh, was it Nathan? I think I'm getting that right. Prophet Nathan. Um, uh, but the prophet is is short-term raised in a surprise manner, and he's upset. He says, "Why have you disturbed my rest?" So this whole concept of, um, and I'm not trying to get into all the the arguments on whether that was um, a real event or not. And everything I can read from all the descriptions, that was absolutely a real event of this prophet rising to to tell Saul what was going to happen to him. And it does, it comes true. So even um, if this disembodied spirit that was temporarily uh, raised um, and told Saul, you know, there's a reason why the Lord is, is rejecting you is because your heart isn't with him. And he tells him about his death and that comes true. And he doesn't lead anyone away from Yahweh. He doesn't encourage anyone to uh, worship idols or stop worshiping Yahweh. So um, this this moment in First Samuel, oh, okay, be the prophet Samuel. This moment, First Samuel twenty eight, he is actually passing the Deuteronomy thirteen test even after his life, even while he's in Sheol. Um, so it's, it's hilarious. Uh, but yes, this place of Sheol is a place where we quote unquote we make our bed, we rest in this place, and we wait for the resurrection. If you're part of the righteous and that's where we strive right we are faithful to the end for he who endures the end will be saved and this is why the spirit of god is there right in sheol this is why it's called a place of comfort and rest there's actually an angel probably more than one but there's specifically an angel named who is the guardian of this place so yeah i mean yes second corinthians uh, uh five that um second corinthians five that paul is talking about in 5a, yes, if you're absent from the body, you're going to be present with the Spirit of the Lord. Now, are you going to be hanging out with Yeshua? No. Again, Paul, you have to understand, Paul is making summation statements in much of his epistle letters. And if you don't understand 
all the the Old Testament law and the prophets, then you you run off in the confusion easily, which is why we're warned by Peter about Paul's writings, um, because there's a lot of things that mechanically go into place to a quick summation statement. So that's why we've always encouraged folks: look, don't get your doctrine um, directly from Paul. Right? If you're new to the faith, if you're still learning about concepts, just take a moment with Paul. You might want to just put him on the back burner and go read the front of the book, go understand the law and the prophets, go start in Genesis and start trying to understand what you're reading. And, you know, um, a great practice is take a chapter at a time. Right. And then just try to write out a summation of what you just read a chapter at a time and see if you can even paraphrase what you just read. It'll help you walk through the ideas of, do you really understand If you can't even repeat it back to yourself, what you just read in summary fashion, you maybe didn't understand what you just read. Might want to read it again. Just go through, go through the book because all that stuff is foundation for understanding everything the epistle letters, including events happening in the book of Acts. It's all that foundation for understanding what you're reading in the New Testament. So, And all the events that Jesus is doing and saying. So if you want to understand your Messiah better and you want to enjoy the Gospels better, take some time in the Law and the Prophets and understand where they're coming from. Okay, so um, let me see here. Let's see if there's any other questions. Um, Lena Kay, a great, great, great comments. Also, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is a, is a big one people like to use. Um, yes, the spirit, the animating force that embodies us, right? In uh, Genesis 2, what is it? Uh, 2, 3, that he breathed into us. Uh, not 2, 3, but um, 2, 15 maybe. But it, um, the point where that the Father breathed into us and we became a living soul. So this idea that we're made from dirt. Okay, he breathed his animating spirit into us, and then we became a living soul, which starts collecting information, right, and collecting experiences. And this is an idea where, um, yes, the body decomposes and goes back to the ground. The, the animating spirit that keeps us alive goes back to the one who gave it to God. But the soul is what Sheol is all about. The soul, there is a place destined for it because the Father knows the moment you become alive, you're collecting experiences. You're collecting your life, you know, your memories, the whole point of view, you know, um, everything that you'll be judged for, if I could even put it like that. I would like to say the joys, the memories, the laughs, the things that you love life for, but at the same time, yes, the soul is a, is a, is something that's not exactly mentioned in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, right? But it's mentioned everywhere else. Right? So this is why in, you know, I think it's Psalm 1610, um, David's talking about that he will redeem my soul from Sheol. So there's a there's a third concept there to consider. Um, okay. Um, it looks like we've got a couple other visitors. Miss Blue Cats. Uh, Shabbat Shalom. Well, thanks for being here. And Larry Newport. You're right. Got to start with the foundation. Thanks for being here. Jennifer Sewell. Um, <laughs> okay. Thanks for being here. Um, yes, Miss Lena K. Our, our lives, Jesus said that, you know, uh, Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 36, um, that we will be, you know, accountable for every word. And this is something that, um, we're judged on our deeds, you know, so this is definitely, this is, this is the collection of experiences that, that comprises our soul, not our body and not the animating force of the spirit of God that makes us alive, but our actual soul. So this is, uh, this is important. Oh, thank you, David Shear. It's Genesis 2-7. Yeah. Um, 
exceedingly abundantly asks a question is passover a night to stay up and watch i was thinking about the servant that would go out to meet his master and jesus sat with his disciples all night and told them to stay up that's a good question man um friend of mine uh put together a a good study on that just recently i posted on my facebook and um, i'm actually looking into that i don't i don't know um particularly if if it's something that we would step and watch I, again but I'm not going to just ramble on about something I haven't studied. So that's a great question. And I'll be looking into it, you know, uh, shortly. So we'll see. But all right, let's see here. I don't know if I see any other questions. Yes, SR, you're right, brother. We've we've been taught ugh, so much, so much bad doctrine. Um, for, and this is why there's 40,000 different nominations that's why there's all these different churches that that in some churches have moved so far from what scripture actually says they're just they're just a, a club now you know it's just a fancy club with with a nice building that looks like a church but um yeah man you're you're right there's this is uh, uh let me see here i'm scrolling back up a little bit and see if i missed anyone's questions <laughs> and my lovely wife yes so thankfully we are talking about the resurrection which i personally believe is connected to the feast of the lord and the feast of unleavened bread which is what i've been talking about and and that has led us into this idea of where are we while we wait for the resurrection if we've already died um which is why it talks about first Thessalonians 14 other places the dead in christ rise right that we're raised on the last day um and so yeah that's that's why, you know, even a fundamental understanding of the resurrection has to do with Sheol, which is why Sheol is one of the context branches on my context tree. So, yes, um, in a strange connection, the Feast of Unleavened Bread actually is more understandable and makes more sense if you understand Sheol, because that's where we wait to be made fully purged in our new resurrection body, fully purged forever of the ability to sin as well as sin itself. So we've already died in our earthly body, our natural body, and we're waiting for this new spiritual body that Yeshua received his resurrection. And so that's, uh, yeah. So essentially the resurrection itself, um, Sheol itself, this concept of the day of the Lord. Hopefully as we talk about these ideas and we go through some of the scriptures to try to flesh out a little bit more as far as, you know, how they all tie together. Hopefully people start to realize why I made the context tree on my channel with all the certain themes that I did because they're so important to understanding and appreciating Passover and unleavened bread and Shavuot, the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Sukkot, these, these big ideas that the Father puts so much emphasis on in his scriptures. And um, these ideas that are symbolically, you know, the typology in them all points to these this big concept called the consummation of the ages, uh, the day of the Lord, the day, the day of wrath, the day of indignation. There's so many names for it um, that uh, that the scriptures uses, and it's just important for us to know. So, uh, real quick, I wanted to go to um, Amos chapter five. I think there is uh, there's quite a few parallels. By the way, I actually did a video last year um, when I was. Uh, I was a guest uh, on a certain show last year, and I did 
a whole bunch of parallels, like 24 different parallels to Passover and the day of the Lord. So just real quick, I'm going to read through just a couple of them, uh, but not try to be too overwhelming. Okay. And unfortunately, this was a spontaneous thought tonight that I just want to have fellowship with you guys. And I did not prepare a whole bunch of slides, but um, first parallel, the blood of the lamb saves us from Yahweh's wrath. Pretty, everyone everyone kind of understands that idea. Um, we got so much stuff behind it as far as, um, you know, Romans 3, Malachi 2. Um, here's a fun one that that uh, supports that statement. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10 through 11, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from the sea to the sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. All right. So there's another inference of Sheol. This is the waterless pit. This is what Enoch 22 actually describes. Um, um, this concept of, a, of like a cavernous place. Uh, that's a, a big room, if you will, with, with a pleasant place. It's also described as for the righteous, um, which is why we're considered prisoners in a sense right where this is the concept of him setting the captives free as well is us being raised from um from death from you know sheol from hades raised from the place where um sin has bound us right and we're being freed by the messiah and brought into um this new covenant through the blood of christ and so also another parallel is that judgment happens while we're being hidden away in the rooms okay so just as in egypt as they were coming out of the Exodus, judgment happened while you know they were to stay inside their houses and their rooms. Um, a third parallel is um, there's a celebration meal involved in each event. So they're having the Passover; it's a celebration meal. They're supposed to be, have, you know, the next day to have another celebration meal with unleavened bread, but but they're on the move, so they <laughs> they can't. And but yeah, they had this Passover, you know, which is a celebration concept. I mean, we see this. In multiple places, I already read about some of it in Isaiah 25 verses six and seven. Um, we also, to me, this is what, if I could take you know some some uh, liberty here, and to me, this is what is being talked about in Psalm 23, the famous Psalm 23, right, which says, "You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil; my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." So to me, this is like you've been resurrected. You're in the mountain of God, the sanctuary of God, the house of the Lord. You're having this marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, yes, you're in the presence of his enemies because all outside around the New Jerusalem is those who hated God. <laughs> so if they've survived, that's a whole whole nother. We've done whole entire videos on the survivors of the day of the Lord and how, you know, this Matthew 25 moment, how he deals with them. Um, but but yeah, that's just an, another quick example there. Then you've also got um, Revelation 19, uh, verse 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So it's just another wonderful parallel on each event. They're having a celebration meal. Uh, another parallel real quick is the scattered, um, excuse me, the... Um, the spotless sacrifice is a lamb, and Yeshua, of course, is likened to a lamb. So this is the, the goal of the Passover, as well as what we receive with our Messiah. Um, you're, you're, another parallel is you're physically delivered from bondage, 
right? Just like they were in Exodus. So will we be at the resurrection as well as those who are alive um, after the day of the Lord and are not taking part in the resurrection. If they're not judged by Yeshua and like the Matthew 25 event happens, which happens after he, he comes down with the new Jerusalem and uh, all the world is gathered to him um, and they're alive, then they're physically delivered from bondage and healing is brought to them um, in a variety of ways. That's, that's a whole nother huge conversation. I hope to do, uh, which would be on my new Jerusalem branch in the context tree. I hope to do videos on that in the future and want to have some more time just to flesh out all the details step by step about everything the scriptures say about what's going to happen when he returns and how he deals with the survivors. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, and you also got uh, number six, and this is some one that uh, I know a lot of people are going to struggle with, but um, in my opinion, one of the great parallels of Exodus and the coming of the Messiah, which is the big Passover is the calendar will be reset. So I know a lot of folks are really really searching through a variety of means at this point to try to find the exact calendar, um, knowing that the enemy has changed some things to try to trip us up over time. Um, but this is something that he reset back then. And when he comes back at the fulfillment of Passover, this huge day of Lord event, when it's fulfilled in the kingdom, finally, um, he's going to reset the calendar again. So we won't have to worry about it. And then uh, another parallel is an animal sacrifice was to be part of the flock. And of course, Yeshua is part of the flock. So these little details that are given to us next is 12. There's all these fun parallels that go throughout. Um, uh, another, like here's a, a little bit of detail like I'm talking about. The Passover was to be eaten at twilight. So in the evening time, right, when the sun had just gone down. Well, Yeshua returns in diminished light. And some people think it's actually in the evening as the start of the new day. That he's going to because it talks about a day of darkness and clouds in Zephaniah 1 and um, uh, I think I want to say Joel chapter 3 and some other places where it just it talks excuse me it's Joel chapter 2 and um, and Amos chapter 5 so for example in Amos chapter 5 it says I think it's verse 18 uh, alas um, you're longing for the day for what purpose for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you and he's talking about um, it will be darkness and not light he goes on to explain more, but that's just a quick um, understanding of comparing literally the time of day, right? Um, when these things happen and how they're analogous to each other. Um, the sacrifices are burned whole. Okay. So this is something, <laughs> this is kind of a little bit of a morbid uh, comparison, but everyone that tries to fight, <laughs> that tries to fight him, um, this, this concept is, is talked about him gathering a sacrifice on the day of the Lord. And it's uh, it's not good, right? This is that what I was talking about earlier in Exodus 15 about that burning anger in that chaff. And Zephaniah 2, 2, let me see if I can find it real quick. Zephaniah 2, he talks about it. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Um, and it goes on into uh, Zephaniah 3, 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. And this is actually something we see in Matthew 13. I think it's uh, verses 49 and 50, where uh, the angels who are literally cordoning off the area where the New Jerusalem is going to set down, they're burning everything inside that area. 
Um, so this is why it says flee from this. You want to get away from this um, because everyone that's left in that area is more than likely the people that are still trying to fight him when he's coming back. And so they're, they're dealt with severe judgment and that's, that's interesting. But um, so yeah, even the leftovers are burned with fire. It's another parallel. That's what I was just talking about doing the angels doing the cleanup. Um, and then of course, um, let me see another fun parallel to look at is man, beast and gods are judged. And so this is interesting because what do we, what do we talk about in the Exodus event, how the gods of Egypt were judged in that moment throughout those events of the plagues and everything as well as the horses and the chariots as we read about in Exodus 15 as well as the men the armies of pharaoh and everything and as well as all the inhabitants of egypt uh, losing their firstborn sons so this was man beast and gods are judged at the exodus passover and and the day of the lord revelation 16 revelation 19 uh zephaniah 3 um habakkuk 3 um I mean, it's just they're all in fact, let's read this one real quick and have a cut three, because this one is a powerful to me. This is talking about the Antichrist himself. So in Habakkuk 3, 12 and 13, it says in indignation, you marched through the earth and anger. You trampled the nations. You went forth from the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. So it's that's just it's wild. It's wild. Um and of course, the one that has to do with unleavened bread, right? The big parallel that there's no leaven in the body or in the land. So this idea of this promise, then, like we talked about, that's promised to Abraham that is fulfilled when the kingdom comes down to the ground and the angels literally prepare the foundation by burning every, clearing everything out and burning everything with fire. They're getting all the sin out, all the uncleanness, all the leaven. They're getting it all out. And this is, I mean, most people understand the immediate parallel there with Passover and unleavened bread. So it's just, it's, it's wild guys. In fact, um, um, let me see here. There's, there's so many, I'm just going to skip to the end real quick, but, um, gold and silver are brought to the kingdom. Uh, we've gone over that in a couple different, uh, kingdom portions. It's Isaiah 60, uh, revelation 21 verse, uh, I think it's 24, 25, uh, Deuteronomy 33. Let me see if I can find out. Quick. Yeah, uh, Jeremy 33, 19. Uh, they will call peoples to the mountain. There they will offer righteous sacrifices, where they will draw out the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. So um, this is the day of the Lord. He's come back, and there um, everyone brings their money basically to the New Jerusalem. So uh, just like in the Exodus, the Hebrews received gold and silver from the Egyptians, and we we see that. Uh, I mean, it's in like Zechariah 14, 14, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered gold and silver garments in great abundance. So that's what I was, that is that Deuteronomy 33 moment where Moses is prophesying also about these concepts. Oh, and by the way, did you guys notice where it says in Deuteronomy 33, 19, they will call peoples to the mountain there. They will offer righteous sacrifices. What mountain? We've been talking about this mountain this whole time, right? It's this Exodus 15 and Isaiah 25 and all that, this mountain of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down and all the people of the earth that survived the day of the Lord are brought forth to it for judgment. And they're all bringing their, their money with them. Basically all the gold of the nations and all the wealth of the nations is being brought with them. And, uh, you know, 54 and 55 talk about this moment as well. It's amazing. And, um, 
and they're offering righteous sacrifices. Okay, so for those who think that sacrifices are done away with, or they think that that they're not gonna, you know, um, that they're not gonna continue in the kingdom, well, we've got multiple scriptures that speak against that. So, um, and here's a fun one, guys. Their first stop when they came out of the Exodus. Um, this is a fun parallel. They came out of the Exodus, the the children of Israel. And they stop before they get to the Red Sea. Their first stop was at a place called Booths, a place called Sukkot. It was in the area of Egypt. It wasn't the Sukkot we read about in Genesis with Jacob um, in, in northern Israel in the in the land of, um, of Canaan. But this was another town called Sukkot in the land of Egypt. And it was their first stop. Guys, we're going to our big booth. We're going to our Sukkot. We're going to the house of the Lord, where these rooms, these booths have been prepared for us. He's He's prepared these tabernacles for us, so to speak, these, these places for us. Um, so it's just a beautiful little parallel. Uh, there's so many more. I'm just, but this video is getting a little long, so I'm going to try to answer some more questions before we, before we stop it. Um, okay. So let me check the chat here and see if I can find any more questions. If I can find, let me see here. My computer's freezing. I'm sorry, guys. Okay. Was bread at the Last Supper, uh, hooded amongst heathen, was, is asking, was bread at the Last Supper unleavened or leavened? And if I remember right, I think it's in Matthew 26, it says it was leavened. Yep. So if all, our SR asks, if all is purged, Sin is purged, and what sin is left, David? Well, this is what I was talking about. Uh, unfortunately, it's a, we've already done videos on it in the past. I need to make some more videos on it. Um, SR, to answer your question, this is talking about um, there's sacrifices uh, are not just for sin, and there also is all the survivors that are still mortals that were not resurrected that are outside the New Jerusalem. They're still sinning every day and doing all that. You know, they're not given a, a new heart and a new body yet. So they're still they're going to be taught the laws. Isaiah two two through five explains. Um, they're they're ble beating their weapons into plowshares. They're not going to be warring anymore. Um, they're coming to Jerusalem to learn from Yahweh uh, through His Son Yeshua, the King, and through all of us, the royal priesthood. And we're going to be teaching them the law of God to, uh, so they can live in peace. And also, so they can actually come into the city for different reasons. So that's again, this. I'm sorry, there's a big, big, you know, uh, teaching that I haven't done yet. I need to, I need to get to that as soon as I can. James Cook, you're right. Yeshua said, "Flee the mountains. You got to get away from the day of the Lord. If you're over there, get out of that place because um, the the angels are going to be coming in, and it's not going to be pretty. You do not want to be mistaken for someone trying to fight Yeshua at his return." Uh, let me see here. Um, let's see. Looking for any further questions. If you guys have any further questions, I'm getting tired. It's late tonight, so I'm probably going to cut this cut this short here in a minute. But I really appreciate everybody um, showing up and everybody. Uh, James Cook, Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for being here. Cynthia Fed, um, David Shear, Shabbat Shalom, brother. Uh, appreciate you. Um, who else have I not said? Um, KCH, KCH, Shalom. Let me see what your question is. What's your take on baptism? Since I've in the past few years tried to bring my family out of the mainstream church Christianity, but it's hard with my father in law being a Southern Baptist preacher. 
Well, John the Baptist, before Yeshua's life, death, and resurrection, before the Acts 2 moment on the, the day Shavuot when the Spirit dropped like tongues of fire, which is what a lot of Baptist preachers will take as a moment of dispensation, um, before all that, John the Baptist is baptizing people. So um, what's my take on baptism? It was, a, it was a part of cleansing yourself before you went to present yourself to the Father. This is what we see in Genesis 35. We actually did a video. Um, one of our kingdom portions, I can't remember what it's called, but it's one. It's the one where we covered Genesis 35. And if you guys did not watch that one, um, we we felt like you know it was one of our better videos because at the very end of it, let's see if I can go find it real quick. We actually break down Genesis 35 because how analogous it is to the day of the Lord when we're washed clean and given these new incorruptible bodies, right? We're washed um, as we come out of Sheol and we're, we're given these, these robes of linen white. It's a beautiful concept and um, it's like a huge baptism essentially. But um, the baptism is symbolic of this idea of preparing yourself and cleaning yourself so that you can present yourself to the Lord. And, and the act of itself in the Old Testament was a process of obedience. So I know that that act has now been used as a process of conversion as far as its symbology and even uh, a process of, um, oh, what's the word? Um, not just conversion, but of, you know, like a, a ritual, basically, that, that, a lot of churches teach that you, you get, I've been baptized myself. Um, Yeshua himself went to John the Baptist and said, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And that's true because that's, that's part of it. And um, now I'm not saying if you've never been baptized that the father's not going to take, I'm not the judge of all that. I'm just trying to say that bad, that the way the Christian church has adopted the Baptists, the baptism idea is the baptism idea itself is not new. It was done in the Old Testament, but the way the Christian church has adopted today and the significance they place on it sometimes is out of context of the Old Testament. But um, the concept in itself as a symbolic act, I don't see anything wrong with it. So I, don't, I just um, want to make that clear. Let me look real quick um, in our little kingdom portions to see if I can find the actual episode where we go over this. But this uh we were happy about it because this you know if we we try to find um in our kingdom portions we try to pack as much as we can in uh, but there's a lot to go over there's so much to go over i think it was in um why jacob stole the blessing oh uh, okay i think it's in how did jacob overcome laban's oppression i think that was it so that uh, horrible title, by the way, I think. I think it was a horrible title. I don't think that was the problem. Um, so anyway, but we we broke down Genesis 35. And um, just to show folks like all the different parallels that Jacob takes his family through after he left Laban. And he's going to go to Bethel and he's preparing his family. Rachel, Leah, the children that were born at that time, Bilhah, Zilpah. All those, everyone in his family, so they can, and part of that was they washed themselves, they changed their clothes, they get, and it's all in the exact same order that we see happens at the resurrection with us. It's just, it's so beautiful. Um, there's so many things layered into Genesis 35 and into Genesis as a whole. And that's, that's the concept of like, you know, if you understand 
um, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers, you can go back to Genesis and you can see why they're doing all these things. So it's it's beautiful. It really is. All right. Uh, exceedingly abundantly, you've asked uh, why Yeshua won't eat the Passover till it's fulfilled in the kingdom. Okay. So why won't Yeshua eat the Passover until it's fulfilled in the kingdom? Well, because it's a memorial. And um, as far as I can tell, he's ministering in Heavenly Tabernacle as our high priest. This is what's what's told to us in, in great detail in Hebrews. This is what was prophesied of him in Zechariah 6, verses 11 through 15, Psalm 110, 1 through 4. Um, Testament of Levi is good on that, and Testament of 12 Patriarchs explains that as well. So this is, he is, um, he's ministering actively before the Father in the heavenly temple for us right now. So he is creating atonement for us, uh, which is why 1 John 1, 9 says, that, you know, the confessor sins, um, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And um, this is a concept of we're actively ongoing, taking moral assessment of us and needing a high priest in a, the Father's tabernacle, his sanctuary, to mediate for us. So Yeshua is doing an active role and an active job now. Um, now, does it say, let me see if I can scroll up a little bit and get back to the question. Um, does it does the scriptures say that Yeshua won't eat of the Passover or that he won't drink of the wine? Let's go look. Let's go look at that in Matthew 26 or is it Luke 22? We'll have to look at both passages probably and check out the different wording. So I think the statement being asked by exceedingly abundantly is um, was a statement made about the fruit of the vine. So let's look at Matthew 26 here, uh, verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink the drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you. Let me see if I can find the other verse. Okay. All right, so it looks like... Um, Okay, yeah, actually, it's in verse 16. Looks like it's in verse 16 that he's talking about that. Now, in the first day of 11, no, okay, so it's, uh, is it Luke 16, Luke 22? Let me go to Luke real quick. Because this is where you have the synoptic gospels and you kind of have to line them up and see because different parts of the conversation are kind of put in one book but not in another. So you line them up and get a, the full picture, the full story. All right, so let's look at um, Lord's first. Uh, okay, yeah, it's here in Luke 22, verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Yeah, so that's uh, personally, I don't know why he wouldn't eat it again, other than just him specifically having a role of Passover is for us on the ground, so to speak. Um, that's why it's kept as a memorial in, in um, Ezekiel 45, 21. In heaven, he's he's literally a judge that's going to be the one passing over us to come down in wrath for the wicked on the day of the Lord. So it, if it's a memorial of an event that happened in Exodus, but that's pointing to a big event that's going to happen in the future, and he's the one responsible for that event, since he's the one that's made the judge and he's the one back with the warrior angels 
then he's not going to be celebrating that memorial in the kingdom of heaven um, right now, as far as I can tell. So it's probably not the best answer, I'll be honest with you. But at the same time, um, I'm not sure if there's a specific thing I can remember in Exodus or in any of the prophets that would explain why he would not eat it specifically, unless he's just talking about eating it with them. Um, but at the same time, that might be, that may not be entirely what he's talking about. He's earnestly desired to support our suffering. I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So yeah, unless he's just waiting for, um, unless it's just a memorial that we as mortals are supposed to be eating, that he's resurrected with the father. So he's not worrying about being passed over essentially, if that makes any sense. Because he is, he's going to be escaping any sense of wrath once he gets out of his natural body into a spiritual body with, you know, incorruptible body. So, you know, it's it it really. I guess what I'm trying to say is, Passover itself it can be kept as a memorial, but it really only applies to the people to whom you're you're getting passed over. So, I guess it really wouldn't apply to him at that point. So, all right. Um, and then, of course, it is kept in the kingdom as a memorial as well in the future, but that's also going to apply to everybody outside the, the kingdom of God as well. So, yeah, it's there's um, verse 20, verse 30. Okay, that doesn't apply. But that's a great question. That really is. It's a great question. All right, let me see here. Is there any other questions we can get to? <laughs> Yeah, I know it's it's late here as well. So, um, okay, I'm sorry, I missed I missed one back up here when we were finishing up the baptism conversation real quick for KCH. Um, I understand that, but who would baptize my sons? I don't disagree with the baptism. Well, here's the thing, brother. We don't have we don't have a John the Baptist running around, a prophet or a Levitical priest in a temple. So. Um, you know, the next system of authority in God's word is just the elder of your family. And that's, and that is where this concept that's explained to us in the new Testament, as far as teachers and leaders and elders being designated over the body, there would be the appropriate ones to do baptism. So those people don't have to be perfect, right? This is why, um, and, and that's why I love the conversation with, John the Baptist and Yeshua, right? Where Yeshua goes to him to be baptized and John's like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. How in the world am I to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. Because ultimately the idea was, you know, the priest was set apart amongst mankind. He was more faithful, more obedient. Therefore, he would be the one who had the authority to baptize those around him. But, you know, Yeshua was like, no, no, we need to do this. It's okay. And John was not perfect like Yeshua. He was not without sin like Yeshua. So, and he's acknowledging that and Yeshua is like, it's okay. So we have a direct example from our Messiah with his cousin whom Yeshua called the greatest of all the prophets. And that's a huge compliment. Um, and he's acknowledging right there that he's okay to be baptized by someone that's not perfect and someone that's not, um, not greater than he was basically. So ultimately this is where the pastors, leaders, elders of churches would come in. And even if, you know, I understand that we're, you know, unfortunately a lot of churches have a lot of errant doctrine and they're, and this is, this is the, the blight, if I could put it like that on the body that we're experiencing in our culture in the last 150 years, having books removed from the canon, having this dispensational theology introduced to the body that just brings so much confusion and so much eisegesis and personal interpretation. And yes, I understand that that there's many people in our family that we 
that may not agree with this right now. When we come to this realization that the Bible is fully applicable and that God's instructions never went away and it's part of our discipleship and it can be a tough conversation. So I would encourage to find someone that you feel, you know, pray about it for one and, and find someone that, that you feel comfortable with that could baptize um, you or your family or, or members of your family or so. Um, I hope that helps brother. Um, so let's look here. I think it's, it's getting pretty late. <laughs> That's right. No Levites here. So it's getting pretty late. Um, so I'm probably going to cut it off. And uh, let me see here. Appreciate everybody. Yeah, you're welcome, brother. You're welcome. And thank you uh, for, your, for your love and support, brother. We appreciate you. Um, and to everyone out there who support us, we, you know, not just in conversation or, or in, or in, and watching the videos that we put out, but also some of you guys behind the scenes have supported us financially, man, thank you. You guys are awesome. Um, this you're, you're helping us, um, be able to do stuff like this. And, um, this is our prayer. This is our heart this is what we feel like God's called us to do. So, um, our, our goal is just to bring comprehension, you know, context creates comprehension and we do our best. That requires us though, to know the Bible so that we can explain context, you know, and, and I'll be honest, I tell my wife all the time, I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't know if I know the Bible yet. And I, and I, she laughs at me and I'm like, but yeah, there's so many, so many different topics. There's so many different tangents of that's in scripture that people have questions on that are good questions, you know? And it's, and this is, this is what led me to start the channel, which was this idea of like, I was tired of not having those questions answered in the churches. And so you, you get to a place where you're like, well, who can answer these questions? Well, I guess it's going to have to be me. I'm going to have to dig in and study and find these answers. And then over time, I was doing that more and more and realizing that I guess God had gifted me to explain some of those answers to other people. And so that's why I'm trying to do my best and make it concise in a way that's palpable and that's bite-sized at times and teachable, uh, memorable, hence the concepts of the context tree and the different branches um, so that people can take this with them and explain it to others or people in their family who, who are also coming to this realization that the fullness of God's word still does apply to us. And it's amazing. It's amazing. And there's so many huge themes in the scriptures that pastors have not talked about for a long, long time. And, and it, it's it, like, it, once you understand those themes, it just, it opens up the word to such clarity and, and your faith is just skyrocketed, you know, and that's the way I feel. And that's the, that's what I hope to share with others. So, um, we appreciate everybody and we, we love you. We thank you for joining us and, uh, I'm going to probably go to sleep. So I hope that you have a great feast of unleavened bread these next seven days and just give thanks to Yahweh. It's called a festival of joy. And this is in book of Jubilees. It calls this the feast of Yahweh. So like, this is one, I don't remember any of the other feasts being called. I mean, I know they're all the laws of Yahweh, the instructions of Yahweh. Technically they're all the feasts of Yahweh, but as a specific name, this was the only one I've ever seen referenced as that. So um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Celebrate to the Father. Um, enjoy your Sabbath, and uh, we'll see you next time.